This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Wednesday, time to talk about your health and the health of our system. And an important development that got a bit lost in all the brouhaha around John Tory's bombshell. All the provinces have agreed to a new health deal with Ottawa. At least they're taking the money. And the money comes with some strings. But are those strings pulled tight enough to give desirable outcomes? One of the key aspects is a requirement to share data and to have better data. And I know that our panel is very keen on that. And I am very anxious to hear how that can improve our health care. Uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free. 1-866-740-4740. Now, time for The Medical Record. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Malcolm Moore, medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret and former head of the BC Cancer Agency, Dr. Amal Verma, staff physician in general internal medicine at St. Michael's Hospital, and Dr. Sohail Gandhi, a family physician and past president of the Ontario Medical Association. Thanks so much, everyone. Hi. Hi, Libby. Hello. Hello. Uh, Thanks let, for having us. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, let's start start with Dr. Verma. I know that you have a lot to say about this data requirement. Yeah, thanks, Libby. Basically, the federal government has made health data and modernizing the digital tools in our healthcare system as one of the four major priorities for this new round of federal funding out to the provinces. And I was really excited to see that. And, and why was I excited to see that? I was excited to see that because ultimately in healthcare, we influence health by making decisions and better data leads to better decisions. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this investment and this focus on data can really help us modernize the care we're delivering and uh, improve outcomes for patients. And how so, uh, Dr. Moore, are we going to be able to see what works and what doesn't work? Do we not know now? Well, I think that the amount of data we generate within the healthcare system uh, is enormous. And I, I think what's been sort of transformational in the past 10 years is the realization that just like human resources and money are important for healthcare, data is actually a very valuable resource that can be used to improve healthcare, make it more efficient, uh, conduct research to define better treatments. And I think it's generally agreed that we need a national strategy around health data to really move this field forward. The other thing I would say is that it's not that the provinces don't agree with this. I think they do. Everyone in the system agrees that we need better data. I think it's just that to do this nationally rather than provincially just makes more sense. Dr. Gandhi. Yeah, so, 
you know, I'm glad to see that this is a key priority. I think Canada is 20 years behind the curve, frankly. Like, we are far behind other countries in the world when it comes to this kind of stuff. I will say that, honestly, I was disappointed when I saw the proposal. Not not that I'm disappointed in the idea that data should be a key priority, but in the lack of specifics that are in there. I mean, if you read through this, all it really amounts to is saying, well, we'll make data a priority, and we're going to appoint these committees, and we're going to have these bilateral agreements with different provinces, so now you'll have 10 separate agreements on data. Um, and I don't see the kind of, of vision for a national strategy that we need to have uh, in place to effectively manage how we deal with healthcare data, how we use it to improve healthcare for the lives of ordinary Canadians, you know, how we use it so my patients can get better care. I, I don't see that vision or that, that boldness there, and that part I am concerned about. What about uh, uh, the sticks in this? One of the criticisms that I have heard, Dr. Verma, is that there it doesn't look like there are big consequences. It doesn't look like there's stuff in there that would uh, force a province to give back money. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's one of the major questions that remains is how much of the funding is at risk? Now, there was one line towards the end of the federal statement on this that suggested that if provinces uh, uh, don't play ball with the need for data or in general with these priorities, then a certain proportion of the funding that is being allocated, maybe up to 5% or so in this renewal of the, of the health transfer, uh, could be withheld. I think we'll see, and I think exactly to Dr. Gandhi's point, that we really do need to see some real teeth and, and specificity in the commitment around health data. And really importantly, to the point that, you know, we're now in the position of having the federal government provinces negotiate bilaterally. Um, the key point, which Dr. Moore highlighted at the beginning, is that we will only get so far as everyone agrees to a certain common set of standards, a certain common set of measures, because at the end of the day, we need to assure that Canadians from coast to coast are receiving the same high-quality access to care and high-quality outcomes from care. And if everyone defines their data differently or formats it differently, then we're not going to be able to do that. And importantly, you won't be able to port your data from one province to the other and have access to that you know, if you're trying to receive care in different provinces. And so I think pan-Canadian cooperation is fundamentally important. And to your point, I hope that they do put some sticks behind it it seems like that's at least on the table, at least at the outset of these negotiations. I mean, right now, I think, Dr. Moore, you can't port your data from, you know, from one hospital system to your doctor's office. Well, I mean, I think that it's not ideal for sure, right? Uh, but uh, I think to be fair, there are already, there is already multiple national organizations around healthcare data. CAIHI is a good example. Yeah. I actually, um, this whole field of data, there's issues around privacy, standardization, quality of data. There's a lot of work to be done to define, you know, what this data set would be and how best it would be collected. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a challenge for the future. I actually, having worked in a provincial system, uh, which was BC Cancer, where we did do national reporting, I actually think the idea of linking some funding to, to the provinces supplying the data is actually a good way to do it. And, and the reality is, again, the provinces understand that data is important, 
but there's so many different aspects of data provincially that what this would do is raise raise the priority of this idea around nationalizing and standardizing the data so that, you know, I think the provinces, all provinces would have some degree of capability of collecting this data. And obviously, if it's linked to funding, their incentive to do that is going to be much greater. So I actually think that's not a bad way to move this forward. Uh, Dr. Gandhi, one of the things I think that is already measured, at least to a certain extent, is is how many people have access to a family doctor to primary care. But even there, you know, if you look through the news media, there are reports of anywhere in Ontario between 1.5 to 2.2 million. And the reality is that we don't actually know the exact number. That's there. There's are good estimates, and they're probably fair estimates. Um, but it's not really well defined, uh, even for something that straightforward. Uh, and to the point of of portability data, maybe it, it might help um, the, the listeners to know a little bit about how other countries do this kind of work, which is what we should have been doing all along. Um, full disclosure, I've done, I've talked to the Canadian Turkish Business Council on it. If you look at a country like Turkey, in Turkey, they have one system for all their hospitals. All the data goes to one system, and their government has provided all of their citizens with an app called Enabiz, which means that any citizen of Turkey can access their healthcare data. When they go to different parts of the country, they can take their data with them, show their providers, and everything is seamless. And that information can be used to determine where services are needed. And that's been done in a country like Turkey for like 10 years. I don't understand why Canada is so far behind. And that's that's the frustration you see from someone like myself who gets three pieces of information from SickKids Hospital on the same patient, all of which are categorized differently on my EMR, right? It's that, inequ- it's that inefficiency that we have that we have to address and look at different countries around the world to do it properly and use it to care for our patients. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I've, I've heard my family doctor complain about trying to get records. And, um, it just seems like, uh, it should, it shouldn't be as hard as, as it is. Dr. Verma, I mean, you work at St. Mike's, uh, you see patients who are admitted, I believe, and, you know, they might come from uh, all kinds of places. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Libby. I mean, I think it, it's, it's challenging because we have, over the past few decades, allowed uh, different healthcare organizations and different healthcare providers, whether that be an individual family physician practice or a hospital, decide what health records provider they want to use, what electronic medical record they want to use, and basically not forced any kind of alignment uh, or enforced the need for a certain kind of data sharing. And so it does make it really hard. And I think as you know, many of the listeners here will have experienced, it's really hard to access our own health data. It's why I'm actually happy to see an aspirational goal in these uh, objectives set out by the federal government that by the end of this you know, funding cycle, the goal should be that every Canadian can access themselves their own health data uh, electronically. And by, you know, proxy, of course, then your healthcare providers can also access your data. And I think it's it's really essential. I, I think our minds immediately go to that uh, use of data, which we call sort of primary use of data. So primary use of data is when you're using the data for your day-to-day clinical care, and that's critically important. It's also important for us to think about the secondary uses of data. So that's 
the ability of our health system to use the data for things like ensuring people are receiving high-quality care or planning the health system. So actually, Libby, the example you gave of how many people are attached to a family care practice, that's a perfect example of a metric that we actually can't measure very well at a health system. There are individual research groups that are trying to do this across the country, but our health system can't measure something as basic as that. Um, let me give you two other really concrete examples that are so important today. So many of your listeners will know that there have been huge drug shortages over the last year, especially for things like children's pain medication. Um, and we don't have a good system of knowing how much, what our drug supply is um, and how much of a certain kinds of medication are available, what might risk going into shortage soon. So that's a perfect example of where we need data sharing. And a second one is how many healthcare workers there are. So we don't have a good catalog of how many nurses, how many physicians, how many people are practicing in different environments. And if we're going to address the major crisis in healthcare today, which is the lack of healthcare workers, we need to be able to know who's working where and where the shortages are so that we can intelligently target our resources to solve these problems. Uh, Dr. Moore, is there anything else in the accord that you either like or don't like or miss? Well, you know, I mean, I think the the accord I would I would view as a starting point. Uh, I think the provincial premiers would say they look at it as a starting point around uh, how much money is going to be put into the system. But I think it's also a starting point around a new level of federal provincial cooperation around health, and and I think identifying data as a key thing uh, is very important. We talked last week about how there are some, there could be some very useful federal initiatives uh, in health around uh, pharmacare or around manpower training. But I think this focus on data is important. And, you know, it's interesting that uh, the, the country that is generally considered to be the best at this uh, is not something you'd ever get in a jeopardy uh, answer, but the actual answer is probably Estonia. And the reason Estonia was so successful is that they sort of built in, they understood maybe before other people how important data was going to be. So they built their whole healthcare system around this understanding that data needed to be collected. And so they, what they do is they require everybody who participates in the health system to submit data. Uh, as part of their conditions of payment or working in the system. And that's kind of what we need to think about in Canada. If you try to retrofit, as, as uh, Dr. Verma was talking about, when you have multiple hospitals with different IT systems, different ways of collecting data, different data elements, it's very hard and expensive to retrofit that to a common national data strategy. And so I think a prospective way of thinking about how do we how do we create this data and how do we, we maintain it is, is quite important. And if, this is not a problem we're going to solve uh, by the end of the month or the end of the year, but I think this is an important step and more cooperation between the provinces and the federal government uh, will be a key component of success, I think. Hmm. Uh, moving right along, there was a Canadian study this week on Paxlovid 
And it showed, as expected, that it was very effective in reducing hospitalization and death among high-risk populations for COVID. Uh, so is this, did it kind of come out too late? Or is this, uh, how do you see this information, Dr. Gandhi? Yeah, so I think that that's great information. I think it just proves what uh, we had known all along, truly. It provides added support because there is some skepticism, unfortunately, still out there about Paxlovid. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy with the results of that. I, uh, I've prescribed Paxlovid to a number of my own patients who are high risk. I do believe it's helped a lot of them. And uh, I would just encourage people to recognize that it is a good medicine and that we have a treatment available and and to be reassured that this is more supportive evidence that this is a safe drug. Dr. Verma? Yeah, to your question about whether it's too late, actually I think it's um, an important addition to what we know about Paxlovid because it gives us three new pieces of information. So the first is that um, among people who are vaccinated, Paxlovid is highly effective. The uh, original randomized control trial did not include vaccinated patients. So it actually is really important for us to know, actually, this is still beneficial, even if you're vaccinated. The second is uh, with the newer variants of COVID. So the original trial didn't include uh, Omicron uh, variants, but this uh, observational study tells us that even in the time with the Omicron variant, which we think is milder than the previous Delta variants, actually the benefit of being on Paxlovid is still important. And then the third thing is people who are on medications that interact with Paxlovid. So one of the really important things for people to know is that Paxlovid does interact with other medications. And so before you start taking it, it's really important to speak with your physician or pharmacist because they can adjust or change some of your other medications temporarily. It's a short course of treatment, right? It's only for uh, typically about five days. And so you don't need to um, stop all your it's okay often to stop another medication or adjust it for a few days, but we didn't know that from the trials either. So with those three pieces of information, I think it reinforces that this is a highly effective treatment. And if people are diagnosed with COVID and they're in one of the risk categories, so over 60, or if they are uh, immunocompromised or have medical comorbidities that put them at higher risk, then they should seek out this treatment and they should seek it out early. It only works if it started within the first five days of of onset of symptoms from COVID. What are some of the medications that it interacts with? That's a good question and a complicated question. It can interact with a lot of different medications, things like some uh, blood thinners or other cholesterol-lowering agents and other things. And so it's really common medications, actually. And so it's really important um, uh, that you... Speak with your with your family doctor or speak with your pharmacist. Dr. Moore, would you give it to somebody who's on cancer treatment, who's on chemo? Yes, short answer. I mean, they're, they're, this is a vulnerable population, and uh, so the risks of a COVID infection are higher. The other point I'd like to make is this is a very nice complementary topic to the previous one, because if you, if you read this study... Uh, This was generated on over 175,000 patients in Ontario who were treated with, who had COVID, and a subset around 9,000 who got the drug. And it just shows you how powerful access to health data can be, because basically they they work for an organization called ISIS, which is an Ontario-based 
uh, health data organization actually set up and funded by the government. And they were able to, to access all of this information from 2021 and generate this report. And it, it just gives you an idea of the power of these big data analysis if you can easily access the data. In this case, the way they got the data was from, uh, was from public health uh, around uh, COVID cases and around the Ontario drug benefit because everybody who gets the drug uh, goes through the Ontario Drug Benefit Program. So again, it just shows us how helpful uh, big data can be in health. Uh, before we wrap things up, I'd just like to get to the question of whether, uh, you know, the whole system or the aspects that you all practice in are, are getting back to, and I have air quotes here, normal uh, from uh, the COVID problems. Uh, so, Dr. Gandhi and your, uh, you know, your general practice, are things uh, looking, uh, starting to look like 2019 or not? Yeah, so I don't think we'll ever look like 2019. I, I think that normal has changed, and that that's okay. Normal changes all the time. Uh, for example, I, I'm seeing patients in my office, which was good, but I'm also doing phone calls to about, my numbers are about 20% of my visits are phone visits, which was not the case in 2019, but that's the new 2023 normal. Um, the new 2023 normal is that all of my uh, all of my offices have uh, air purifiers with HEPA filters in them, right, to help reduce the risk of not just COVID, but every respiratory virus, which was not something that was in 2019. So I, I don't think we can say we're going back to 2019 because I don't think we ever will, but we are establishing a, a new kind of normal that I think is, is fair and I think is reasonable and I think is something that we can all uh, accept and, and actually still be, uh, be happy with. Dr. Verma? Yeah, I think my answer would mirror Dr. Gandhi's in a lot of ways. Um, the hospital system, you know, it, it's been a hard winter for hospitals, whether that be emergency departments, intensive care units, pediatric units. We've heard a lot about capacity strain, and we've heard a lot about worker shortages, and those things continue. You know, even in our hospital, you know, we're seeing that uh, there are large numbers of patients, uh, emergency waits are long, um, and not enough nursing staff or other healthcare staff. And so those challenges continue, and they're uh, really important that we address. I think that I have noticed, I would say, a, a slight change in the mental state of healthcare workers. This is a very anecdotal, you know, my own experience on the ward, but people do seem to be a bit happier. It was a very burnt out, very stressed, very exhausted last two and a half years. It feels to me, I'm feeling a little more hopeful, a little more optimistic around turning a corner and hoping for a nice spring and summer. Um, but certainly those challenges of staffing and capacity uh, persist and will require both short-term and really, importantly, long-term investments and solutions. Dr. Moore, in the cancer system. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say, I'm not sure normal is the right word. We're, we're, we're back to a steady state. I mean, the cancer system, like all of health, is always busy. Uh, we, we had to maintain the cancer system as best we could during COVID because even in the worst of COVID, more people are dying every day from cancer than they are from covid so I would say that there's now an understanding that COVID is just one of many health challenges that the uh, the health system is grappling with, and um, and and so 
I think we're back to the regular way of doing business. I think it's also, you know, we're often critical of our healthcare system, but I think if you look at what's happening in countries like the UK, where they've really had difficulties returning to, quotes, normal, they've got major problems with strikes, with wait lists and stuff. And so, um, I mean, it's been a difficult time, but I think all things considered, we've come through it as best one could have hoped, and and things are more back to an, a normal setting. I think the the one thing that hasn't become totally clear yet is what the financial costs and consequences of dealing with COVID uh, were and are going to be on an ongoing basis, because we were already tight for funding, and then there's no doubt that there's going to be an ongoing cost to uh, surveillance, vaccination, testing for COVID. That's just an add-on to everything else. Okay, well, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, an optimistic view, I would say, and that's a good note to end on. Thanks so much, Dr. Malcolm Moore, Dr. Amal Verma, and Dr. Sohail Gandhi. Thanks so much. Thank you, Eddie. Okay, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, should he stay or should he go? Guess who I'm talking about when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Should he stay or should he go? That is the latest conundrum in the John Tory saga which I must say is taking on operatic proportions, soap opera, that is. We have been hearing about a groundswell of people who want him to reconsider and stay. You just heard what Doug Ford had to say in Bob's News at the top of the hour. And yesterday we talked to some counselors allied with John Tory who want the same thing. And on yesterday's show, half of our extremely tiny random sample of callers wanted him to stay, and others said that he should go. And that is about the same result of a scientifically conducted poll by Forum Research. So what do you think? Should he reconsider? Uh, is he going to look, I don't know, um, like a bit of a, you know flip-flopper if if he reconsiders after such a dramatic announcement. The numbers 416-360-0740 toll-free 1-866-740-4740 that n- not to mention we don't even know when he's going and how long that could last for. Right now I'd like to welcome in studio Lauren Bozanoff, President and CEO of Forum Research. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. So why did you conduct this poll? Well, you know what? We're really curious to see what the average Torontonian was thinking about this whole saga. We heard from, you know, tons of politicians and journalists and everyone else. And I really had no gut feel of how the public was taking this news. And so we went out and did a poll, a scientific poll. And lo and behold, the city is hugely divided on that. We came up with 43% saying, yeah, he should go, but more 45% saying he should stay. That's a huge number. He he said he was leaving and then 45% are saying, no, no, don't go. (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is. And uh, were you surprised? I mean, normally if you 
go out on a poll, I would assume, or I go into the street talking about some municipal issue. I mean, a lot of people have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, but on this one, I would think uh, everybody was dialed in. This was amazing. We only had about 10% saying they didn't have an opinion. So 90% had an opinion. We had no preamble. We didn't talk, but it didn't mention the whole the whole story. We just said, should he stay or go? <laughs> and 90% knew what we were asking and they had an answer one way or the other. They had an answer one way or another and, and a reason for the answer or just... Well, they gave us the answer. The interesting thing is the breakout uh, by demographics. Uh, men are more, slightly more saying that he should go, but women are slightly more saying he should stay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you I know what? I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I, I noticed that even on, we, we only had time to take a, a few calls, uh, and the board is starting to light up, I must say. Uh, but I was surprised by that, too. You would have thought that uh, women, uh, you know, would say he, he done her wrong, off with your head, but it was the opposite. Do you have any kind of explanation for that? Well, you know what? Also what was happening is we got a good look at some potential replacements for him. And I don't think they were making a pretty good uh, comparison uh, with respect to, 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 to Tory. So I think people started thinking, gee, if, if, if John Tory goes, who will be the new mayor? And we've heard some of them kind of auditioning over the weekend and we weren't impressed with them. Uh-huh. And you found that this also broke down along political lines, right? Well, this is really the big difference. So it's not gender. It's not a gender gap. It's really a political gap. So among conservatives, 51% say, yes, he should stay. Uh, among liberals, this is 60% say he should stay. Only 29 say he should leave. 60% want him to stay. That That is huge. On the other hand, among the NDP, they all want him to go. <laughs> say he should go. Only 23% say that he should stay. Huh. And uh, today uh, we heard the premier saying that a left-wing mayor would be a, quote, disaster. I mean, but but the left is definitely, I mean, in the short term, they're all jockeying to get changes to the budget. But um, so it, it... it really is something interesting. Uh, let's take a couple of calls, and I have some more interesting questions for you, Lauren. Let's begin with Pat. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. Um, as you know, I am a former counselor in a municipality. I'm also a CPA. And the the amount of information and the lack of knowledge of many of the counselors as far as financial aspects, I think it's very important for the man to stay to get through this budget. Otherwise, we're just going to have a mess on our hands. That, that's a simple answer. Okay. Let's go to Joy in Markham. Hi, Joy. Hello, Libby. Good day to you. Thank you. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah. My opinion is that he should stay. He's a good man. He made a mistake. A lot of men out there and in his position are doing the same thing, but he came forward and he apologized. And I lift my hat to him. I mean, he created a mistake that, you know, I, I think he's very ashamed of. And, um, as, uh, you know, I, I feel for him. We all make mistakes. We are all sinners saved by grace. And I think he should stay because uh, the country, we need him. 
And for him to back off, we're going to be in a total mess politically and otherwise. Okay, Joy, so, thanks for that. Let's go okay, to Jessica. Libby, that's my opinion. Okay, Jessica. Okay. Hi, um, Hi. Libby. Um, so I just want to say that this is, it's just sad that this has become a major distraction uh, in regards to important issues at City Hall. Um, I was just speaking with one of your producers and um, one of the things I'm concerned about is the change in TTC service, and yet we're still paying an additional $0.10 cents for our fare. And then in addition to that, we have to deal with safety concerns on transit, which is definitely at top of mind with what I'm dealing with right now. So I just think that the city needs a change, and I wouldn't be as concerned with um, Tory's personal issues if this person did not work in City Hall to begin with. But the fact is that she did, and that creates a conundrum, and I think that's something that needs to be examined, but it shouldn't be the only thing that we're focusing on right now. Okay, Jessica. I think that kind of proves what you were saying, that it breaks down uh, along political lines, because uh, uh, those issues, which Tory, uh, by the way, he can veto if there are any amendments uh, changing those things, which in general, and I don't want to be a blanket, uh, you know, generalization that people on the left of council, they want, they want to lower the police budget and increase the TTC and, and a bunch of other things. So I think that, yeah, that, that kind of confirms what you found. You know what, it really, those three callers really just made the case for John Tory. The first caller is talking about the lack of knowledge who knows more about the city than John Tory? Like, you know, he's everywhere all the time, like 24-7, he's on it. So, and the second caller, he did handle it, I think, well on Friday night, you know, as, as well as it could be. And I think he did a great job, actually, owning up to it and taking responsibility and not trying to deny I, it or I run from it. I bet there are others doing the same thing who are now maybe <laughs> thinking, <laughs> thinking maybe uh, uh, maybe they will get caught. Uh, I That's pure conjecture. Yeah, so so you know, you know, given the, the the circumstances, I think he did a good job on Friday, and I think he's getting credit for that too. He didn't run away from from it or deny responsibility, and I think that helped him out. And the third caller talking just again with the problems the city is facing now, the TTC and the whole issue uh, surrounding that. So, you know, who who is going to step forward and deal with all those issues? People are wondering. Well, uh, if if he stays through the budget anyway, he will. And, uh, of course, there's that whole issue is who is who's going to crowbar more money out of the senior levels of government. But I'm wondering, this is a big, dramatic announcement. I mean, in general, uh, I'm just trying to think who all would have made a similar announcement and backtracked from it. And I can't really think. And how would the public view that i mean well actually there's an example pierre trudeau quit and then he did walk it back he did come back you know after he lost to joe clark he uh you know he said he was through he was quitting and then a snap election came along and he was back in so there is there is some of that going has happened in this country yeah he didn't get hugely high marks for doing that though no but he actually had his most successful term after that yeah he got the constitution everything done uh huh. So, I mean, I guess was that a follow up? Is he going to look uh, a week, or you know, people come up with with some wild 
you know, conspiracy theory sometimes. And you kind of wonder, was this orchestrated? So he'd see if people really wanted him to stay or I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I wouldn't think that I've heard that from people. That would take a fair degree, I think, of real political skill to figure that all out and, and, and play it that way. And But it does seem to be turning out that way that, uh, you know, there is some interest in him staying. So, you know, he's got to be giving it some thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's the other question, you know, uh, what will that, is he wounded, uh, certainly in terms of, of intergovernmental negotiations and stuff like that? Well, I think despite what Doug Ford's saying, he'd rather be dealing with John Tor than anyone else. Well, yeah, for sure. And I think the federal government, too, would rather be dealing with him than someone else. So, you know, I think in, in terms of being wounded, not in terms of those two levels of government, hmm. they'd be relieved, I think, if he stuck around. Yeah. Uh, but but whether they would uh, think, well, they had more leverage is another question. <laughs> it's, it's true. He might not have the same uh, leverage they had before. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Sarah in Pelham. Hi, Sarah. Hello. I'm, I'm not a resident of Toronto, but I've been following this, and I thought because Mr. Tory has such a high percentage of people that want him to stay, would he consider putting his name on the ballot with the other candidates? And if he gets elected, he stays as mayor. Okay. Didn't we just do that in October, Sarah? Thanks for your call. Well, yeah, we did. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and of course, running a citywide by-election, I forget the number, it's a, it's a big number, it costs a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 you, know, you know, that's an interesting scenario, because the, you know, the, the thing that people will say right now is, well, you know, this was going on, and we didn't know about it during the election, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, implying that it may have changed the outcome, I don't think it would have, but you never know, right? Well, you know, another thing, I mean, uh, that we didn't know during the election that he didn't disclose, uh, which frankly, personally bothers me much more than the affair, is that he went to the province and asked for those strong mayor powers, and he didn't tell us when he asked for our votes. That's right. That's the other thing that uh, has since come, come out since then. So, um, so you know, you know, he... There's there's the issue of the expense versus if 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 he went this way, um, you know, then he gets a mandate to move forward and uh, he can put these issues behind him. Hmm. Yeah. I've, somehow I don't think that will happen. No, not given the cost of this. No. Yeah. So um, what's the bottom line on this? Is this just uh, uh, I guess it's valuable information for him as he considers this. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, um, you know, we really didn't know what was going on in terms of public opinion for the last three or four days. Like this big, big thing happened on Friday night. And I think a lot of people were talking at home about it, talking to their spouses, you know, about this issue. Um, but we didn't really know. And I don't think he really knew what people were thinking. He was probably getting and is probably getting tons of advice from who knows who, um, but not really getting a good feel for where the public's at. So now he's got some of that, some input on that. Okay, Lauren Bozanoff, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, And we are taking another break, and then uh, we're talking about another uh, larger drama playing out in the skies, balloons, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There is another larger drama playing out in the skies involving our security. The Chinese spy balloon, alleged spy balloon, that was shot down over the weekend, and three others that have been characterized as unidentified flying objects. And yes, there are people who seriously wondered if this was the start of an alien invasion. Now, those three things up there have also been shot down and their origin is still unknown. But the latest thinking is that they are or were benign. Uh, so uh, let's try to sort out what we know and what is going on there. I am joined by Larry Haas, Senior Fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and Dr. Kim Richard Nossel, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Political Studies and the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here, Libby. Okay, well, let us begin with Larry. And uh, so... Uh, at first, the thought was, oh, my goodness, you know, they're deluging. And the, the, by the they, the thought was China with balloons. And now maybe these other three were nothing to worry about. Am I correct? It certainly looks that way. Uh, we're taking, I think, rightfully, the uh, initial balloon, the Chinese balloon, very seriously, had surveillance, communications equipment on it. It was over the U.S. mainland uh, and at a relatively low level for such spyware, about 60,000 feet. Uh, but the other three, it looks like, have no connection. And the latest thinking are that the uh, thinking is that they were actually commercial. But I think listeners need to keep in mind that there are many things up in the atmosphere, some put up by government, some put up by businesses, some put up by Individual, So it looks like these were three commercially related entities of some kind, not put up by a government, but we still don't know for sure. Uh, Dr. Nossel, would you, would you concur? Do you have anything to add to that? No, I mean, essentially, I think that, uh, that Larry has it exactly right, that uh, uh, we still don't absolutely know what these other three things were. They clearly were not um, uh, Chinese spy balloons like the first, the first one. Um, but, uh, until someone comes forward, uh, to report, uh, uh, their property blown out of the sky by a sidewinder missile, um, we actually, I don't think we'll really know. I think we might hear from their lawyers. Well, we'll see. But we also may find out when we finally are able to track down uh, the contents uh, of those three entities, which are obviously somewhere in the seas. I mean, our focus is now on the Chinese balloon because it was a question of national security. But my understanding is that the remnants of the other three entities are accessible. We just haven't gotten to them yet. Uh, so we, we will probably be able to figure it out ourselves uh, if no one comes forward. And with regard to legal matters, I really am not a lawyer and have nothing to say about that. Uh, so why uh, were we not aware of these things before? I gather there's something about the settings on radar and they were flying too low uh, to be noticed. Is that right? Dr. Nossel? I'll let you go for professor. Yeah. Oh, go go. Essentially, as, as I understand it, uh, 
the uh, the radar settings for uh, for NORAD um, are as essentially designed uh, to catch things that are moving uh, exceedingly fast, like enemy aircraft or the aircraft of other countries, uh, rather than uh, the uh, the either the the spy balloon, which, uh, as Larry said, was traveling at around sixty thousand feet, which is way above um, uh, commercial aircraft. Um, but the others were traveling um, at uh, uh, at uh, 20, 30,000 feet, which is absolutely um, the uh, uh, the commercial air, uh, area. And so it's a matter of, of uh, opening up um, the uh, uh, the radar parameters to catch other things. Hmm. And uh, it, it, does this kind of underscore that we are in a period where we really have to do that because who knows what's up there and what they're looking at. Or, you know, some people say, well, we spy on each other all the time. And uh, they're just wondering, like, why are they using a balloon? Well, well, um, I would would say that we, we, we do spy on each other all the time. In fact, countries, not only adversaries spy on each other, but actually allies. Uh, from time to time spy on each other, and we do it from the air, from the sea, and on land. Um, I think, however, that this was particularly brazen. Uh, it was a new kind of entry into American airspace. As the professor said, we were sort of looking for other things, not for these kinds of things. And I think that uh, you saw uh, the United States shoot down the other three entities um, in the aftermath of some level of controlled panic over the fact that this Chinese balloon had gotten into our airspace, we really weren't equipped um, to um, deal with such uh, kinds of objects. And then there was some fear that, you know, what else is in the atmosphere? Is this the only Chinese object? So we started looking closer. And the closer we looked, the more we saw other things that we just weren't sure were okay. I think things have settled down now. We clearly do need to make some adjustments in, you know, how we track devices. But I am not of the opinion that this is no big deal. I think it is a very big deal. These are the two greatest powers in the world. And this is a brazen attempt by one of them uh, with very sophisticated surveillance equipment uh, over sensitive sites, including nuclear sites in right. Montana. And uh, keep in mind that those uh, balloons can, uh, uh, with the kind of equipment that I think we'll see was uh, once it's recovered from uh, the ocean and examined, uh, has the ability to engage in uh, much lower level uh, surveillance than is possible, for example, uh, with a with a satellite, um, uh, both both great powers uh, use satellites to spy on each other. Um, but uh, you can also use balloons for uh, getting a, a a much closer look. And is it basically the wild west, and anybody just puts up what they want? Well, the, I I don't know how to refer to. I, I don't know that I'd refer to it as the wild west. Uh, we do know, as the professor said, of each other's satellites. They are at much higher altitudes. I do not believe 
that a commercial interest or an individual can just simply lift something up into the atmosphere with no one knowing about it. Obviously, we've got aircraft flying and, you know, these are safety issues. So I think the Wild West is a little bit of an exaggeration, but but it is reality that countries are spying on each other from satellites uh, as well as from elsewhere, as I said before, and that's not going to end anytime soon. It's been going on for decades. It was going on through the Cold War, and it's certainly going on. It's going to go on in the future through whatever this U.S.-China competition turns out to be, as well as plenty of other countries uh, doing their own spying through satellites. And where does this leave uh, both U.S. and Canada or uh, the West's relations with China? Larry? Uh, uh, I think it's one of those things where there's going to be a lot of bluster uh, in the short term. The Chinese are, uh, are threatening unspecified retaliation against U.S. entities of some kind. I think this is going to play out. And then I think we're going to get back to a more of a normal stasis with clarity that these are two adversaries that are competing for influence all over the world, very big stakes, but our economies are very intertwined. We have other intertwined interests. And to the extent that we can cooperate with one another on things, we will do the best we can to do that. But one of the things that also needs to be added, however, is that uh, part of the, the problem with the American response is uh, that uh, the spy balloon got heavily politicized uh, in American politics. Yeah. And so from, from that point of view, it seems to me, that uh, that's going to complicate the relationship between the United States and China on this particular issue. Some people or commentators have have characterized this as as a kind of a turning point or a sea change. Is that is that a little overly uh, overblown? I think that that's way overblown. Um, uh, as 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 Larry says, uh, this is uh, uh, this is something that is being managed. Um, uh, there will be all sorts of bluster from uh, the government in Beijing and a certain amount of bluster from uh, Washington as well. Uh, but essentially, uh, this, is, uh, this is not something that is going to radically shift uh, the, uh, the needle in the relationship. Uh, okay. I'm looking at the clock. It's time to wrap things up. So uh, what's the bottom line on this? Larry, beginning with you. Uh, I would say a few things. First of all, I agree that the issue became unfortunately politicized in the United States. However, I think that's going to calm down. Number two, this is a very brazen and clumsy effort by the Chinese to increase their spying capacity on the United States. I think that's going to calm down. And number three, I think, as the professor said, let's keep keep this in perspective. I don't think it's a turning point. We will go back to our normal level of adversarial competition between the world's two great powers. Anything to and, add to that? And, and uh, very quickly, just simply part of that competition uh, is the kind of spying that is quite normal between great powers. 
Okay. I think that says it all. And thank you so much for clarifying that, Larry Haas and Dr. Kim Nosal. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.